Well, hello, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And ah, we come at a very, very challenging time to our show tonight. Of course, um, I cannot uh, resist and, and what we all have been um, concerned about and, and uh, really upset uh, to the max about the um, injustice, as I have typified it in Those of you who get my newsletters know I said that um, uh, the one thing in life that I have a hard time ever accepting is injustice, where something wrong supersedes something right. And that's what happened, of course, in that game. And um, I, I, I just, I'm sorry, I don't understand sports regulations. So uh, I, 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 this whole business about if it's a that particular kind of move, the referee gets to Their judgment overwhelms any evidence that is clear for everybody in every home in America to see that they literally um, did a bad thing. <laughs> they they just did not um, call it. It was unbelievable. Um, of course, the the weird thing about that is um, it's not just about the team. It's just not about those two players. Um, or those referees. It's about the whole city. We're all so much involved in this because we root for things to give us um, faith and hope and, and cheer us up when things are tough and things are pretty much always tough. So it, it was so important. And um, uh, the irony, of course, is that it came on the cusp of Martin Luther King Day, which is a day that we look back on, commemorate, think about, contemplate, around the injustices of civil rights um, movement that had to undo some very, very evil ways of running things. And um, here we are, 51 years since Martin Luther King's death, and we are having to deal with what I consider to be, and I, I wasn't here for integration, I have to tell you. I just can't even imagine how horrible it was. So I just have a hard time with it. But um, we're here at what seems to be one of the worst periods in terms of civil rights since the beginning of the civil rights movement. I have with me tonight somebody who was there. So Liana Tate is um, a, a, a citizen of New Orleans who has continued since the age of six to deal with um, head-on issues of civil rights. Um, as a six-year-old with um, three other young six-year-olds, they were the first people of color to attend public schools in the city of New Orleans. Uh, I, every time I see the picture of you, Walking up those stairs, I think would I have had the nerve, the courage, the bravery to walk up those stairs. And so I just think, what was going on in that young woman's head? You have to tell me, Leona. What were you thinking? What were you feeling? I don't know if I was feeling anything with civil rights. I, At six years old, you don't really understand. You know, I knew something different was happening. I knew 
things had changed in our lifestyle. I um, just curiosity, you know, just was there, and um, I, I I just can remember getting up that morning, and and in in my household it was like a, a holiday because everybody was there to help my mother prepare me to go to school, and I knew I was going to a different school, but I didn't know why. And um, so you knew nothing about. The racial milestone that you were achieving that morning? No, they didn't. That's, just, that's, that's like our folks not telling us about how the birds and bees were. Right, right. <laughs> right. They didn't show me anything to make me afraid. I didn't. I didn't. Oh, okay. Sense that was any, 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 yeah. yeah. That and makes sense. I see. I was not afraid at all. Um, once I got there, it just looked like a, a Mardi Gras day because it was just mobs of people in the street and. I didn't even realize that they were all white. Um, I just can remember once we got in the car, my mom said, just sit to the back and don't put your face to the window. So I knew something was was going on. And uh, when we pulled in front of the school, we, it was just mobs of people. All I can remember was police on horseback. And uh, at six years old, the only thing I can relate it to was that a parade was coming. And I wanted to know why I was going to school and everybody else got to watch the parade, and my mom said, "No, that's not the case. Not the case." But um, so you're walking up those stairs. You had to hear some pretty ugly stuff. I couldn't recognize, or I don't remember at least what they were saying. I can hear noise, and it just sounded like it was being a mob of a crowd for a parade. You know, that's what it sounded like to me. But once we got in the building, it was like we just shut that off. It was like, you know, it was just our safe haven. You know, we didn't, if if we could hear the noise, we tuned it out once we got in there. Mm. But it, once we got in that first day, it, it, was a, it was a long wait. We waited outside the office on a bench for quite the a few hours. The principal's office. The principal's office. Sitting on the bench. Sitting on the bench, just trying waiting. Trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, and they didn't seem to know what to do with us. You know, we sat out there so long, I can remember the three of us played hopscotch on the blocks on the floor. But once we got placed in the classroom, it was like a whirlwind. The white parents just started taking their kids out of school. By the end of the day, we were the only three in the entire building for a year and a half. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Oh, my God. So now what did you think was going on? I still thought somebody was going outside to watch a parade, and we just wasn't able to go. And um, never realized how confined we were, you know. Um, but that lasted all the way until we were in second grade, you know. And we didn't get to play in the yard. We didn't. Couldn't eat from the school. We had to bring out food. We had to bring out beverages. We... But other kids came back into classes, right? No, ma'am. You no, wait. You no. went to school in a school all by yourself for a year and a half. Every teacher was in the classroom, but there were no other students. I didn't know that, mm -hmm. and I, I, I apologize for being ignorant. But again, I just wasn't here for all that. When I, I got here in the 70s, and there were racial tensions in the city like everywhere, but I had, I just wasn't here for that. Mm -hmm. So as that time grinds on and you're in that school all by yourself, now you're picking up what it's all about. No, we... 
seemed to be very comfortable because nobody else was there. So, you know, we, you know, um, we just did what we were told, you know, and I tell that to children today, obedience played a big part of this, you know. It wasn't about asking any questions in them days. You just did exactly what you were told to do. Um, we had a very good first grade teacher, was very motherly, um, that stayed with us at all times. Um, it was different because no other children were there, but we were coming from a school where that I can remember being overcrowded, you know, and I was very uncomfortable. I can remember crying at my old school and just wasn't comfortable, and I didn't do that at the new school, you know, and it was very much. We were, you know, brought to school every day by the U.S. Marshals, and they brought us home every day, and at night our houses were, were guarded by the New Orleans Police Department, but um, it was... I guess because nobody else was there, we were really comfortable. You know, we didn't, I wasn't allowed to even walk out a doorway unless the U.S. Marshal was right there to receive us, but it just was different. But we didn't, you know, didn't sense any fear, had no idea how fearful they could have been. So for a year and a half, you're in a classroom by yourselves. Then... What happens? Went to second grade, and we were still alone until after the Christmas holidays. And then um, 25 other students came, and but they were predominantly black. There were only two white white girls that came back. And either they were in a, the same grade as we were, or they were in a, a lower grade, which was kindergarten. Um, Integration progressed as we progressed a grade, and once we reached tenth grade, well, then it was open up through all the through all the grades. But um, after that year, McDonough 19 had became a predominantly black school, and the thing was to keep us in a white school. So we were transferred to um, to another all white school in third grade, and that was that's cruel and inhuman punishment. You 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 tolerate you had to go through all that in one school. And then they they put you through it all over again. Was that was that why? What was the policy behind that? I really don't know. It was, I guess, for it to work, we had to endure what we went through. Um, was Sims is where we really faced integration. You know, in third grade, it was it was just different. We didn't have the U.S. Marshals. We didn't have the police protection. We endured a lot at Sims. After it's all, you're, you're out of there, you're in high school. Where were you in high school? I went to Nichols, Francis T. Nichols. Nichols. In high school. And, and, and Nichols also all black? No. Mixed? Pri- primarily it was white? predominantly white when we got there. And, and how, did that, how did that work? It was rough. It was rough. It was still that division. Um, by this time, you really understand oh, exactly I know what's yeah, going on. Oh, I knew. But I was so overwhelmed, I never talked about it. Nobody knew who I was. Um, Nichols' rep, um, mascot was Rebels, and they had the Confederate, Confederate flag. So there was a lot of protesting, and, and not the first year so much. We They tried to get us to to stand to the Confederate flag and uh but that just wasn't happening. So in You didn't just, stand. No, no. Now th- now that, that now is where some serious bravery comes mm-hmm. in because 
by this time again, you know what you're up against and you're being told to do that. You've been obedient for most of those younger years in school and now you don't stand. Was that something you talked about amongst you and said, we're not doing that? Yeah, well, it was more black students then. So, you know, it was something that we had. Everything was so separated then. We had our own student council. We had our own, you know, everything It was just... Even the prom that year was a black prom and a white prom. It was just, it was everything was just so separate. So that separate. was in one of the meetings. That's what we decided to do. That we wouldn't. But the following year is the year that the the boycotting started and the, and the riots started to have the mascot changed. What year is that? Seventy, seventy to seventy one. Just before I get here, I come in seventy two. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. What impact did that have on your world life view? How did that impact who you are and have been ever since? I knew that I had done something very important. I knew that for a long time. But I just didn't want to talk about it. I just just, just couldn't talk about it. And Gail and Tessie will tell you the same thing. We would talk about it amongst ourselves, but we wouldn't share it with anybody else. So it stood embedded in me for a long time. I didn't even share that with my children once I had children. It was quite a few years. I remember reading in the story, and was it The Advocate, that talked about how one of your children or grandchildren was reading history, and they see for the first time mm -hmm. who you are and what you did. That's a lot of experience to keep to yourself. Right. That's hard. Yeah, it was. I'm yeah. the opposite. I want to blurt everything out. Ask any of my friends. I, I don't I don't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> it was hard, but um, I mean it is it just gotten to a point where, you know, somebody would either I, I think most of the things that outside of the schools were the things that overwhelmed us, the press, you know, and things. You know, people asking you questions and in the interviews and people wanting you to show up. And, and it's we intrusive. Just, yeah, we All just, that was intrusive yeah, in your lives. And for a child, I was, it was a lot, you know. And I just I didn't want to share that with my children. So wherever they went to school, nobody knew who I was unless they saw me on TV. You know, I didn't just wanted them to be ordinary. What have you been doing all these years? Thinking about what I was going to do. <laughs> Thinking about what I, what should I do with this, you know, for a long time. For a long time. I said, something. We gotta, I've got to do something with this. Something with this. And McDonough 19 closed in 04. And I can remember getting a call asking us to write a letter to try to keep the school open. But by the time we got the call, the decision had been made to shut it down. But I knew something had to be done with that building. So once Katrina came and they allowed us to come back to the city, it was always, you know, that's just it was just something that the Chester Gill and I always shared. You know, that was that was our moment, you know, and and we talked about that a lot and um it was a must that I go and see what the building looked like. And it looked repairable. You know, something needed to be, to be done. And I knew 
you know, they were fighting because there was only going to be one school in that area. And, you know, the first thing I, I thought about was trying to get another school open, you know, but they assured me that it wouldn't be a school again, you know, so. So you had to start thinking about what it should what be. What it should be. Before you proceed with that, I want to uh, now pick up on a, a, a little excerpt from the speech that former Mayor Mark Morial gave at the uh, opening ceremony for Martin Luther King Day at the jazz market on uh, in Central City, because um, it's a setup basically for what we're about to continue to talk about. Luther King had a unique ability to frame this vision he had on the principles of Christianity married to the values in the U.S. Constitution. So he framed what America needed and what America had to be in terms that no one had ever heard before. Remember, churches at that time were the most segregated places in America. And when Martin King began his activist efforts, he was criticized by the establishment black church and criticized by the establishment white church. They both said preachers had no business in civil rights. No business in civil rights. I want people in this city to understand the city's contributions to the city's contributions to the civil rights movement and say while all of you all are gathered this is the only state in the south that does not have a first class museum or monument or place where civil rights can be recognized. They just one in Mississippi. There's a powerful one in Birmingham. There's one in Atlanta. I'm part of an effort in Charleston to do something there. We've got to fix this because this history can't just live on Martin Luther King Day. This history has to live every day. understood this history, they'd also have a better understanding of why some of the wickedness we see and feel in America today has no place. They'd understand that this coarse language and hatred and contempt has no place in America. So... Leona is now on the cusp of addressing the issue that Mark was just talking about. Leona, talk to me about what you're thinking about happening at um, McDonough 19. And I I want to give a shout out to uh, Alembic Community uh, Development that is your partner, in a sense, in developing this building into what it's going to be. Tell me about it. When I was told it wouldn't be a school again, I knew it needed to be something educational. 
And when I visit a lot of schools in New Orleans and I'm introduced to the students, they don't know who I am. So I thought of somewhere where they can come and learn it all, you know, all of the civil rights movements or whatever happened in New Orleans is 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 what I wanted I want to put there. We get a lot of college students that want to come in and talk to us, and they they got to shop around to get the pieces that they need for their for their for the whatever they're writing in at that time. And I feel like if we could have all of this placed in one one place where they can just come and study and and do their research, it it it, it would be a great thing. Um, I'm, not going to call it a civil rights museum. We're going to call it an interpretive center. Um, it's going to share some, hopefully, the some of the what we went through during the '60s, and you know um, what we experienced, and, and some other civil rights movements and issues in the in the city that I really want to incorporate. We have also partnered with um, People's Institute that want to come in and do a, what they call a community and it's going to do undoing racism classes from kindergarten through high school. So we're going to, um, we're working on it. We're working on it. So it may not be all what they're looking for, but it's going to be close. So, so close. when you say an interpretive center, mm-hmm. um, some folks who are in the business understand what that means, but uh, tell the audience what you hope that's going to mean, because I, I, I'm, I'm imagining that it's going to basically kind of promote dialogue. It's going to promote dialogue. That's what we, we want them to come in and understand what when we went into this building, what we faced, but come out knowing that um, let's talk about it. Let's do some reconciliation here. Um, we need to we need to fix this, and I think through dialogue, that's the only way we're going to do it. So. Yeah, so it's it's not just about um, uh, the, the history again. It is more about going forward um, how uh, you're looking to promote people uh, communicating with each other and maybe getting over some of the the closing the gap, closing the distance between one side and the other. Right. That's the, you know that's how this show originated, really? Crosstown Conversations. At the end of um, during the planning after the storm, neighborhoods weren't talking with each other. Some folks were feeling like they weren't welcome back, mm-hmm. and they weren't right. in some cases. Right. And in other cases, people just were trying to look at new ways of redeveloping, and it wasn't well understood. But um, I wanted to open up that dialogue, and that's how we started. Mm. And since then, it's gotten to be a lot of other things included. (laughs) What do you hope will be the outcome of what you're doing there? That we can have it incorporated somehow that these, you know, if the schools would bring their students there to get this history, um, since they're not sharing it in, in their curriculum, that this will be some place that they can bring the students to 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 have that be a part of the curriculum. Um, not just our students. Uh, we invite really everyone, you know, educators, 
um, anybody is welcome. Our community is is you know we the lower ninth ward needs to needs to be involved in this. Um, we need to get our lower ninth ninth ward back up and running and. and Make it a together place again, like it used to be back in the day when we did go to McDonald 19. We had a village, you know. We don't have that village anymore. Um, and hopefully, you know, it'll be a better outcome somehow. So it's not just to promote um, dialogue and to close the gap between people in general citywide, but you're also hoping that this is going to be important to help bring the ninth ward back, the lower ninth ward back. Right. Our second and third floor are going to be low-income housing for the elderly, and hopefully, you know, we can get them united in, well, some kind of way included. Engaged. Engaged in, in, in yeah. And People's Institute is a fantastic organization. Yes, they do... They um, Great things, and I understand uh, Ron Chisholm, Kimberly Richards, Richards. they're very much involved in working with you on this. What's the time frame? Is there one yet? (laughs) Probably be a long time. I don't know. We'll be completely done. We're hoping for November of 2020. I'll go with that, November 2020. Maybe maybe, uh, on the cusp of uh, another try for the Super Bowl so we can get rid of that injustice, too. (laughs) You're right. Well, they put us in a somber mode for Monday. <laughs> the Saints really know how to keep our morale going. So, you know, I didn't, I don't, I didn't know if I was sad for the Saints or sad for Martin Luther King Day. They just really put us in a somber mode. Mm-hmm. But in a way, you've had to deal with that somber mood your whole mm-hmm. life. Yes, I have. I can hear it in your voice, mm-hmm. and um, I have to tell you that uh, you're um, you're an important. Um, example of of how to um, keep keep it up keep it keep the faith keep going and um, surmount what has to be um, an inner sadness that just won't ever go away people talk about how this game will never go away and I'll tell you who I hope it never goes away for the referees and the eagles oh yeah they're you know they're never gonna have they, they didn't have a free victory it's at a too big a cost to everybody here, but also for them. They're going to have to live with this the rest of their lives, too. And um, I, I was um, impressed to hear a story during the ceremony on Martin Luther King Day about, um, and I don't remember, I think I read this actually in a newspaper about a guy who was in the Ku Klux Klan who uh, tortured some white folks, and he came, if I recall my details correctly, which is not always my strong suit, um, to Martin Luther King and um, apologize and ask for forgiveness. And if um, that need to apologize and forgiveness is in all of us for the things that happen that are unjust, um, what a wonderful world it would be. Okay. Well, I just got my first apology. Like a week ago, I met a student that was there. He was in fourth grade when we came into McDonough 19. And and he said all he could remember, his name is Stephen, all he could remember was um, that his mother took him out because she was afraid of bomb threats. He was afraid of bomb threats? She was afraid of bomb threats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he apologized for not being there. 
Oh, that's uh, that's so powerful. I hope you held on to his contact for when oh, you yes. do your oh, interpreters, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Um, folks, we've been uh, talking with Leona Tate. Um, Leona, I'm expecting you to come back and um, and and give us some updates as your project develops. Um, and uh, I imagine you could kind of use some help. And and we're about to talk with a group of people who are in the volunteering business. And um, maybe uh, they'll have some volunteers to help you. And um, anybody out there who wants to help, how can they reach you? They can contact us by Googling my name, really, to bring up everything they need to know. Um, Or our email is ltate at ltfcinc.org. Do it again. Ltate, L-T-A-T-E, at ltfcinc.org. INC.org. And folks, if you um, didn't quite get that, um, stay in touch with us here at BOK. We'll uh, hook you up. Thank you so, so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I know uh, hearing you talk about how much you did not want to talk about this so many years, I know it must still be hard. And I I appreciate very much that you took the time to come and talk with us. And you see these young guys that are in our studio now (laughs) who have been involved in recording the stories of people in their world, and that's what we're about to talk about. And maybe they'll show up at McDonough 19 when the Interpretive Center opens, right? Kirk knows me. <laughs> Leona, thank you so much thank you. for being thank with you. us. <sighs> okay, transition. <laughs> um, so Leona is, um, uh, as my husband would say, just a baby in her 60s. <laughs> oh, you didn't want me to say that? That's fine. That's fine. Oh, I'm, I'm proud of being <laughs> 75. I just had my 75th birthday this summer. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have made it this far. Uh-huh. So, um, but I, I'm in a room now with a bunch of young guys. And um, uh, we have, first of all, Caswick Navarro. Say hello, Caswick. Hello, good evening. How you doing? Close that door behind you for me. Thank you. And um, Stephen Welford. How you doing? Okay. Can we hear everybody? Because I know we're... Okay. And um, Kurt Justice. Good evening. Good to be here. Kurt is with um, an an organization called um, uh, Camp Restore. And Camp Restore is one of those um, organizations that has um, more than one mission. It started out, uh, and I, I, I remember early on um, some of the things that uh, that y'all did, um, being heavily involved in our redevelopment, our recovery after the storm. Um, but now they're involved with a very special project that we're going to talk about uh, during this part of the show. Uh, it's called Young Men's Voices Have Power. And um, it's a very unique project. Before I jump into that, I just want you, Kurt, to establish Camp Restore. Remind everybody who may already know or never heard of you, what you who you all are and what you do. <coughs> Definitely. We, um, we're located out in New Orleans East, um, and we're a, a volunteer base camp, if you will. We host thousands of volunteers from all around the country every year. And we connect them with uh, 
over 100 local nonprofit organizations. So uh, basically any kind of volunteer effort in New Orleans that's underway with local nonprofits, local volunteer leaders, um, we're connecting people from all around the world to join in and basically be a boost to that. And uh, there's some pretty amazing nonprofits in New Orleans that are leading not just the country but the world in a lot of innovative uh, work out there. So we're excited to be able to bring those groups together. Yeah, I'm uh, astounded. I don't think anybody has any clue how many there are that are working here uh, at this time. We probably have more nonprofits than we have for-profits at this point. I think the last Give NOLA day, there were over uh, 700 nonprofits that were registered for Give NOLA. For a city our size, that is a lot of nonprofits. And every single one of them has the big chore of raising money. That is a difficult thing. And um, a challenge, and I'll let you make your pitch uh, for help for your organization before the show is over. Uh, uh, but then you segue and you get into doing young men's voices have – well, let, let me go back for just a minute. So one of the things that you did in addition to bringing volunteers and assigning them out is that you were heavily involved in the rebuilding process itself. So I just want to um, put that in there as the foundation. But then you developed this program called Young Men's Voices Have Power. First of all, tell me, how did that happen? How did you segue into doing that? How did that evolve? Uh, about five years ago, I was um, blessed to be able to become part of the, the first cohort of a new fellowship with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. And the, the key focus of the Kellogg Foundation is to make sure that our, our young people, our children, are given every opportunity to grow up to be healthy, uh, well-educated, successful adults. And it starts very young. And um, so through that fellowship, um, coming off of that, uh, I took that perspective and what I learned uh, in, in that opportunity and evaluated what we were doing with, with our, uh, our volunteer operations and, and uh, partnerships with local nonprofits. And we realized there was a bit of a hole in our experience and knowledge and engagement, and that was with our young men here in New Orleans. And we saw that as an opportunity to... Uh, see what we could do to become better educated as a as an organization, and then also to uh, hopefully get the the voices of our young men out there, get their perspectives out there into the public, um, because they're really under, you know, their their voices are not nearly as amplified as a lot of other voices are talking about them. So we wanted to kind of change that. So after the storm, I worked a lot in uh, many of the planning efforts that went on in the city and met with people in neighborhoods all over. And one of the things that I discovered is how smart people basically are about their circumstances, their neighborhood, um, the issues that they're confronted with, how to um, uh, organize around them. And I would have to say that the planners who were running the planning meetings learned as much as uh, people who were coming to these meetings learned. And one of the things that I think came out of the whole process is the realization that you can, you can guide the fate of your, of your neighborhood, of your, of your home, of your friends' lives. And um, it sounds like that's something that um, is part of what you're hoping to accomplish with this. Okay, I want to hear, let, let's, let's go right to the, to, the, uh, to the voices of the folks. So, um, Stephen, Tell me about exactly uh, what working on this project has meant for you, what it's been like. Tell me about what you were actually doing first, and then tell me uh, what it has meant for you. All right. So uh, my part of the internship was going out with the volunteers as they uh, help 
rebuild the homes and stuff like that. And I started to get like a real personal connection with them. Like if you just know me, you're going to start to like everything that we talk about things. That's just me. And through that, uh, I started to do interviews, you know, working with the camera, uh, with Kellogg. They uh, funded the whole thing. So they put a camera in our hand and said, hey, let's see what y'all can do with it. You know, let's not give y'all the topic. This is a video camera or a still camera? Both. 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 Okay, good. Both. So uh, we went out and we started to do that. And it was one question that I I made sure I wanted to ask every uh, person that I interviewed. And that was, if you can change one thing in the world, what would you change and why would you change it? Mm -hmm. You know, it could be something small, something big, something evil that you want good or something good that you want evil. You know, anything that your mind goes and... We got answers out the wazoo. Uh, people saying things from they wouldn't change nothing because God has everything for a reason to let's let's make a co- the first two years of college free because a lot of people can't afford it. You know, things like that. You know, let's rebuild a homeless shelter and things like that and have it actually being free instead of having people pay to stay at a homeless shelter. You know, that doesn't make sense. You know, things like that. So that was like my perspective of the whole project. And then. We just kept getting a buzz of, you know, positivity. So we just kept moving forward with it and became into this great documentary. Okay, we're going to go to the documentary after I, I talk uh, with Caswick about his experience, too, um, because I, I, I couldn't help but when I was reading about this, think about that night when the premiere is happening and you're sitting in your seats waiting to see how people in the room responded to your work. That is nerve-wracking. That has to be both a thrill and fearful. But first of all, before we get to that, um, Caswick, what exactly were you doing, and 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 what what were you getting from this learning from this? Well, um, my intake of the uh, documentary was similar to Steve's, what he had to do. But as I started going, I I ended up getting in front of the camera myself and started telling. You know about Your stories. yeah my story and different aspects of my life and um I was really going through a lot of tough times in that uh particular particular moment in my life so um uh I wanted to show the the foundation of what 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 I go through and what other young black males go through in the city of New Orleans where we go through do a daily basis so um, I ended up telling my story and uh, what I went up, what I went through in the program. So that's that's what my intake was on the documentary. Of the things that you talked about, what was the most difficult thing to talk about, and what was it like to get that kind of as as Leona? You know, the thing that I was hearing so much when she was talking is how she did not want to talk about things. It was difficult for her to talk about things, so it must have been difficult for you. But what was it like to release those things? Oh man, um, I I would say it would had to be um, the coping with the drug situation or, and having my cousin murdered because uh, I dealt with a lot of grief during the uh, program, dealing with a lot of violence and you know, uh, killings among the people in my life. So I would really say, like, uh, just the people that I was losing in my life and the drug usage in my life at the time, 
So that 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 was really the hardest aspect I had to talk about on the. And and um, uh, after you talked about it, how did you feel about having shared that story, and what was the, what kind of response were you getting? Oh man, uh, it was like a big weight lifted off my shoulders because I, I I never had anybody to sit down and just talk to me about the uh, situation, and at the end of the like towards the end of the program, I, I didn't realize I had like a a mental illness with myself, so. Uh, People started helping me get into um, therapy, therapy, and um, mm-hmm. going to talk to a psychiatrist and things mm-hmm. like that. And things started to get better for me. So um, I didn't know I had a mental illness problem at the time. And um, when I when they introduced me to the uh, psychiatrist and stuff, and I got on these meds and things like that, I, I really started seeing a better me and. Uh, it really, it really got easier for me because I, 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 I didn't know how to talk about, you know, my people getting murdered and uh, my cousins and drugs, really. So that 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 was really a hard time for me. What um, I don't know what word to use here. Lucky sounds so light, but uh, what um, how how fortunate was for you that the time when you were going through this, this program happens to come along and you happen to be able to be a part of it. Um, that must make you, Kurt, feel good about your program, that you were able to be a conduit for him to um, change his life. Yeah, I, uh, you know, just looking back at the, it was about a three and a half year period overall that we were working on the program, getting up to this point, And, you know, just in reflection, um, I, I just have an incredible sense of, of um, being blessed and, and an honor to be able to work with everyone who we worked with. Um, the, the interns are amazing people. They've got some brilliant minds. They've got um, some fantastic talent. And, you know, what, what we were able to do with the program is really just connect that with opportunity and connect that with uh, a bit of skills training around cameras, and they did all the rest. And um, that's you know, to me, the the huge amounts of talent that our four interns have, you know, to me, and, and you know, we went through this project. We didn't go and say, hey, send in your resumes. We're going to pick the people that have done the most things, that have got the best grades, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We said, let's basically interview everybody that applies and get to know them as a person and get to get a sense of who they are as an individual. And um, just being able to uh, to go through this experience with them together has completely changed. I mean, I can't even begin to describe, I guess, where my mindset was and where my understanding was um, three and a half years ago compared to what I've learned from them the last three years. Stephen and um, Chadwick, tell me about the um, um, Caswick. Tell me about um, the uh, documentary that came out of of all of the shooting and the stories that you collected from others and from yourself. Uh, the whole piece as a whole is just phenomenal. Um, yeah, you're gonna laugh, you're gonna you're gonna get emotional, you're gonna get mad in it. Um, it's a lot. Uh, the time we had the premiere, you know, the nervous part was you know trying to hear people's reactions, you know, but you know we're sitting in the front, so we can't see the people. We just can hear them and going off that. To me, it, 
I think more people need to see this um, because we're doing more putting out positivity instead of showing, you know, all the bad sides of New Orleans. We're trying to focus on the good things that's going on. See what I'm saying? Instead of focusing on so many murders and things like that, like we're going to show you like this is what we come through, you know, everything that we came from, but we're moving forward to bigger and better. We're not just going to stay in a box that people put young black men. You know, they put us in a box and say, this is what we do. But we're showing that we're breaking through that. We're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to be great at doing it. What? Um, so, okay, so h- how long is the documentary? Uh, just over an hour. Yeah. Okay. And it was premiered at Ashe um, Community Center last weekend, Cultural Center. And um, is it going to continue to be viewed? H- h- tell me about the schedule for the viewing, so I've got that in one second. I do want to give a shout-out to our other two interns who are not here tonight okay. like, with us, and that's uh, Robert Pierce and Deontay King, who Ooh. the other half, um, who did some awesome work as well. Um, as far as showing the uh, the film uh, in future opportunities, I know we're already uh, talking with Ashe to hopefully – uh, have them host us again in the near future. And in the long run, we do hope to have it online um, via streaming or something like that where uh, many, many, many people can that. get to it um, regardless yeah. of wherever you're at in the, in And, of the course, world. you're going to let me know so I can make sure and put the word out and make Certainly. sure that people hear about it. Um, so, Caswick, um, uh, when you were in the audience and and this is and and it's up there on the screen and you you're in how many people were there? There's about 150 people there. 150 it was people. It was at the Power uh, the Powerhouse Theater. Right, the Powerhouse Theater, which is a beautiful place. Yes, it is. Um, uh, 150 people watching this with you. What was that like? Oh man, like Steve said, man, that was uh, it was a joy. It was a joy, like uh, just hearing the people's reaction in the back of me, like man, um, I didn't know so many people was gonna come out. And uh, really, when I got there, people was telling me, like, man, I already know who you are. You know, you ain't got to tell me who you are. I already know who you are. Like, they had already saw it before. So I was kind of excited. And um, like like I said, what I want to come from, what I want to come from it is uh, just to help the young brothers going through the same thing as I'm going through myself. So uh, I uh, actually went grab one of my little protégés out of my neighborhood and got him a chance to get his hands into the uh, documentary and put his music into it. So uh, oh, the music that you're hearing in the in the uh, documentary is really one of the one of the persons that came from the same neighborhood as me, with the same background as me. So it was really a great experience for both of us, and I, I appreciate. What's his name? Uh, his name is uh, Ward Lamont Lamont Ward. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't. What, what's what's his rap name again? Uh, Pop Easy. Pop Easy. Uh, what is it? Pop, 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 easy. See, he, yeah. Kurt even knows it. I don't even know. It. Uh, so, um, yeah, man, I want to keep continue to do that with the people that's around my neighborhood and uh, people with the same background as me. So, um, uh, Kurt, I can't help but uh, take a moment to say that um, you know my organization has a program called Creative Futures, where we basically talk to kids in high school. Um, who have any kind of creative instincts about all the kinds of jobs and opportunities, career opportunities and educational opportunities there are in the creative industries. And uh, we need some volunteer help. Cool. <laughs> we'll have to talk offline. All right. But um, I think one of the things that drives me nuts is that there are so many creative kids in the city of New Orleans and people who 
are walking along in an ordinary, straight-ahead life and don't even know that they're creative until somebody puts a camera in their hands right. or asks them to do a score. Right, right. And then they discover what they can do. And so I, I really believe that one of the ways we're t so shortchanging our youth in a city and consequently our city is by not helping kids understand what they can do with their creative capabilities, whether they even know they have them or not. I, I taught a, a group of kids once, and one of the kids in our class was really having a hard time also in life. And I, I urged him to bring me a design project. He brought me a design for a sneaker that was unbelievable. Mm. It was beautiful. I mean, and, and he just, again, he, he was somebody who had a talent that um, – no one had asked him to, to demonstrate. And we had other kids in the class who became painters, who um, wrote music, who did film work. We've done some of that as well. <clears throat> I'm blown away by this program. And um, I, I want to uh, make sure that this documentary that you've done uh, does get as much uh, uh, viewing as possible. Yes. What happens now for you guys? I see you have a meter reader T-shirt on. Do you work with Entergy? Yes, I do at the moment, yes. Okay. I I'm glad you're there, but I hope that you're going to develop your creative talents. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because this you know one day they're going to probably automate that, right? <laughs> yep. So you better be ready. <laughs> what What are you thinking about doing? Uh, my future, though, is just using this job as a stepping stone to uh, put money into myself. Uh, basically start my own photography business. That's what I really want to do. You're doing still photography, yes. too. Still right. photography and yeah. music videos, anything that you need, I can do. Um, but uh, I, I want to do that because ever since this program, like putting a camera in my hands, has changed everything that I wanted to do. Like I thought I was going to be like an architect or something, and then once this happened, it would change everything instantly. And just connecting with people, I love like just talking to someone, finding everything about them, then getting them so comfortable to open up with you. That's when you really know that you're building a connection with this person is when they take off their mask and they start to open up and talk about everything for you. Like that's when I feel like, okay, now I see why I'm doing this job. So that way I can get the great deep stories out of people. And how do you do that? Uh, weirdly, I just be myself. Um, it's hard. I, it's like, it's hard to put into words. Um, me, but it's me. Like I'm You're dealing to... with them as a person with a person, yeah. which is how I do my radio in a exactly. way. I, I'm not here with a script. Exactly. I'm just talking with you guys. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's the best way that uh, you can do it is just freestyle it. And once we start to talk about anything, you're going to open up to me. It's, you have no choice. Because <laughs> I'm open, and then that makes the whole environment just open. And, and, and the same thing happened with you, really, uh, uh, in, a, in a more difficult time for you in your life, probably. But because of what you went through, um, the people you're talking with can identify and they can and feel open to talking about it as well. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. But um, really, my what I want to what I want to come from it is to really just help kids with in the same predicament as I was. To just come up out of that, man, because like you said, uh, there's a lot of kids that's just going through a lot of troubles, and you know, under all that filth, is is a lot of gemstones they can use and uh, things that can get them ahead in life. And I think sometimes our background overshadows what what, what we have beneath all of that. 
know what I'm saying? Like, um, people just thought I was some this thug, you know, with long hair and, you know, he doesn't know how to talk Not and that things long. like I've that. I've seen a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> right. we, I mean, we have a few braids here, but they kind of stop at the chin. Right, right. Some of them, those football players, you know, all the way down to the behind. Right. Uh, <laughs> that, like I said, um, the the triumphs that people are going through, it, it, it kind of overshadows what they really can do. So I'm, I'm just trying to uh, make a step of stone in my life for other people that's going through the same thing as me to get a, get ahead in life and get further in life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I do that, then, you know, I didn't do my work. But do you think you might continue to work with the media that you were working yeah, with? Yeah, for sure, Or is that sure. not as much for you as for sure. Yeah, cause, Maybe for Stephen. Yeah, because grow up, growing up, I, I always was into music and uh, film and things like that. So yeah, of, of course, you know. And uh, Kurt, he calls me all the time, like, "Can you do this? Can you do that?" I'm like, "Man, for sure, man. For all the help you didn't give me, you know, it's no question. I, I will never say no to you." So, and uh, he he gives me uh, as much opportunity as he can, and I'm gonna just try to, you know. Get farther and farther, whatever opportunity he gives me. So, appreciate that. I, you know, this has been a very powerful um, evening for me to to listen to you guys and uh, Leona, um, who, you know, as they say, you're always on the shoulders of who was before you, and and we're on her shoulders. Um, and then um, there's going to be folks who um, are going to be on your shoulders. Um, going forward, it sounds like to me. Um, what part of the city do you live in? Uh, I stay in the Treme area. That's where I live. Yeah. We're in Treme. Uh, right over there off of Claiborne Street and um, right around the, um, what is it called, the uh, Lafitte Project. Mm-hmm. I guess they're sure. not the uh, well, uh, Lafitte what Project. What was the Lafitte? Yeah. yeah. What's, Before what's the they Lafitte? Uh, yeah. did some gentrifying type stuff going on. Who knows how they are coming about. What about you? What, where do you live, Steve? I, I stay in New Orleans East. In the East? Yep. Okay. Kurt, where do you live? Uh, Pigeon Town. Yeah. Pigeon Town. Pigeon Town. Okay. P-Town. P-Town. Yeah. P-Town. Okay. What up, P-Town? Well, I live in Tremay. Oh, yeah? And I've been there since the 70s, since 1972. Yeah, beautiful area, man. I love that part. I love that part of the city. I love it um, in, in on all levels. Um, it's a little strange to walk down the streets of Treme right now and see all those white people. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Mixed. <laughs> I have mixed feelings about that because <laughs> this is the oldest African-American neighborhood in, in America. America. And yeah. I hope that um, we somehow keep that. Yes. That's an important thing. Um, uh, Kurt, um, where, where, what happens with this project? Are you going to be bringing other uh, folks into it? Well, our, our first goal continue? right now, yeah. Um, our first goal right now is just making sure we can get the film out so more people can right. see it to begin yeah. with. And uh, there are a number of opportunities we're evaluating right now. We don't have a locked in next step, but we don't plan on stopping. If that makes sense, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna do no. some more. Yeah, uh, no. Whose idea was this to do this? Um, it was. Well, I, I have to give a lot of credit to the, the WK Kellogg Foundation for for giving a lot of support in. In, um, but you had to bring the idea to then, them. I mean, they um, made it possible. And thank you, Kellogg, for doing that. Definitely. Um, the, um, so our executive director, uh, David Goodine, and myself, and then a filmmaker named Andre Lambertson, and a stor- professional storyteller expert uh, named David Hunt. Uh, that was more or less the core nucleus uh, who came together with the uh, ideas and, and pitched it. Um, and then from then on, it's it's been 
just that that group and then our interns together working together. And uh, Pam Dunwa has been another key piece of that. So I, I'm going to keep naming. It's going to be like the Oscars. I'm going to keep naming folks. I mean, my wife's been extremely important. I mean, you know, so we all got a lot of people behind us. Oh, I thought like my mother and my father exactly, yes. and my sisters and my brothers brother, and my yeah, wife. So just, everybody. You need you to have that music, that music queued dog, up so you can get me to stop talking. The dog. the dog, yeah. Our dog's name is Ico. So <laughs> the dog. mascot dog. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I understand that totally. I have a dog named B-E-A-U-X Bo. I always spell it out because I don't want people to think it's Bow like the Confederate bow, but it's bow like beautiful in French, right? Oh, and uh, he is very beautiful, um, my dog. Shout out to Bo. Uh, of course, <laughs> if you had gone to John McDonough High School, you wouldn't love my dogs because they used to bark at everybody passing in front of my uh, house all the time. They love to do that. We didn't train them to do that. They just, that's their job. Uh, that's uh, in their genes or something. I don't They're know. They're just see. talking. Um, huh? They're just talking. They're just talking. You're absolutely actually. You're absolutely right. Uh, my my dog talks a lot to people because he just wants you to pet him, feed him, look at him, hang with him, hug him. You know, whatever they can get. Exactly. They're gonna they're gonna bark until you get that. Um, I am just as I said, blown away by this project. Um, it is called Young Men's Voices Have Power, and um, we've been talking with Caswick Navarro. Stephen Wilford and Kate Justice, and I know you're going to want to call out your other partners. Uh, yeah, Deontay King and Robert Pierce. Definitely. Who also worked on the project. Um, you're going to come back and tell me when you have secured the um, international viewing um, <laughs> rights for this, and, and you're going to get it on uh, – public uh, television, and um, you're going to stream it, and uh, we're going to see it so we can hear uh, the voices that um, you all um, touched and brought to um, to the rest of us. And um, I just, um, you know, I'm very grateful for you having spent this time with us this evening, and um, let me know how it goes forward. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Uh, Y'all, this is how um, we get past injustices. You know, we started off talking about um, the injustice of what happened with the game in our city. Um, We talked about the injustices that stimulated the civil rights movement. Um, And and we talked with Leona Tate, who was there and is still here working on this. And I have a feeling these guys are one way or another going to be working on this for a long time in their lives, too. And I'm I'm so glad that um, uh, you're doing what you're doing. Thank you very much, Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Talk with you next week.